You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This program is brought to you in part by our amazing subscribers at Patreon. Join them now at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Like them, you can get early access to ad-free episodes, exclusive bonus content, and more. Our Patreon subscribers help keep us in production, and you can too. It's easy to sign up at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience. Thanks for your support. I wonder if we could begin by, you could explain where we are right now. We're at a community conservation center in Berkeley, California. It's a recycling place. Is it also a, a dump? Is no. that No, it's not. No, it's not. That's called the transfer station, also known as the dump, and that's down the street. Okay, but they are dumping a lot of things. We just heard all of that glass. They're dumping recyclables. Recyclables. Recyclables, okay. not trash. <laughs> the evidence of our throwaway culture is all around us. It produces and it values a superabundance of stuff. I'm going to look in some of these great big bins here. We have lots and lots of bottles. And the trucks are coming through, dumping out more things. Tin can, oh my goodness. Okay, those are more tin cans than I've seen in my entire life. Lots of glass. Despite recycling, we still burn up prodigious amounts of natural resources to create more of everything. We also discard more of it. Large appliances over here, old uh, washers and stoves, washing machines, a half dozen of them. And that gentleman just threw out, looks like uh, part of a computer. Americans generate nearly 300 million tons of garbage a year. That's almost five pounds of trash per person per day. But hang on, this episode isn't a screed about how wasteful humans are, well, at least not directly. It's about how we got to this point, because humans weren't always materialistic. Our hominid ancestors were nomadic and carried what they needed with them. So how did we go from making do with what we need to accumulating what we don't? This is Big Picture Science from the SETI Institute, and I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley. In this episode, how human evolution and the culture of more and more and more has led us to the wrong stuff. Archaeologist Chip Caldwell remembers the very moment when he was stumped by the question of 
how humans went from needing hardly anything to their relentless accumulation of stuff. I was visiting my sister in Seattle for the holidays, and she turned to me with what seemed to be a really simple question, which is, why do I have so much stuff? And I looked around her house, and it was like probably a lot of your listeners' houses. You know, it, it had tables and cups and plates and rugs and bookshelves filled with books and knickknacks. And I began to look around, and I felt like as an anthropologist, an archaeologist, someone who spent years and years studying other people's stuff from ancient times that I should have a pretty simple and straightforward answer. But I didn't. I really didn't. And she stumped me. And I started to look around and realize that no one had really offered a big theory of how our species went from millions of years ago, where we didn't need anything at all to survive except our bodies, to our world today where we need everything. And um, it took me a number of years to, to find the answer. My name is Chip Caldwell, and I am the editor-in-chief of sapiens.org, a digital magazine that translates the world of anthropology for the world. And I'm also an associate research professor at the University of Colorado, Denver. So Much Stuff is the title of his book, How Humans Discovered Tools, Invented Meaning, and Made More of Everything. In it, Dr. Caldwell identifies three fundamental leaps in early human evolution that culminated in holiday shopping stampedes, storage lockers, and a throwaway culture. I mean, we've come a long way. You know, most of our ancestors simply couldn't have a lot because they were nomads, they were moving around, uh, it was very difficult to accumulate lots of materials. But then there's just this total explosion that happens by almost every single measure within the last several centuries, this is something that our world has never seen, our species have never seen. You know, to say that we are drowning in stuff is really not hyperbole. Um, This is the world that we've made collectively as a species. To answer the question of why do we have so much stuff, we must go to the beginning of our relationship with it. This is before cell phones and Air Jordans, before vacuum cleaners, air conditioners, hair conditioners, and refrigerators, before rotary phones, gramophones, and the Model T, before feathered hats, inkwells, gunpowder, and cans of baking powder, even before wax candles and papyrus and before the materials we've used to make all of this, plastic, steel, concrete, rubber, nylon, silk, and oil. We must return to the moment three million years ago when one of our hominid ancestors first realized that a rock could be made into a tool. A lot of different animals actually use tools in really habitual ways. Um, So for example, there's a species of ants that uses mud and other kinds of uh, materials of the world to transport honey. Birds, uh, crows especially, are, have been observed to use different kinds of tools. So there is this deep animal instinct for tool use. But something really, really special happened about 3.5 million years ago in East Africa. And from what we can tell, a very ancient ancestor of ours in the genus of the uh, Australopithecine figured out that stones could be used to cut apart meat. So this was a stone tool that would basically act as a knife, right? Exactly. Yeah, most likely they didn't hunt this animal, but rather it was a carcass that they were trying to salvage some of the food. Um, So this ancient ancestor of ours probably figured out 
somehow, some way, that a stone tool could be sharpened or a sharp stone tool could cut into the meat, could cut into long bones for marrow, and all of those calories could be more easily consumed. And that first cut really was the beginning point of this transformation of our species. Let's linger on this just mm -hmm. for a moment, because I think if we hear that, okay, uh, our ancient ancestors used a rock essentially as a knife, that seems like a pretty straightforward creation. But you make the point that it was actually extraordinary because it required a big leap for early humans to see a rock as anything other than a rock. So could you give us an idea of where that leap took place? Was it a cognitive leap? Was it a physical leap in the hands? Help us understand just what it required for these early humans to fashion this first stone tool. What's so special about this moment is that it was a triangulation of three different abilities. The first was physical ability, the ability to actually manipulate you know, with one's hands stones and to break them apart in particular ways to sharpen them. So a physical ability was really important. Next is a working memory, the ability to remember a chain of actions that lead to a particular outcome. And in this case, you know, imagine you finally realize that a rock can be broken apart. You have a sharp edge. It cuts meat. It makes it easier to eat. But then next time you come across a carcass, do you actually remember those steps that it takes to get to that outcome. And a lot of our most ancient ancestors probably didn't have that ability, that working memory to remember all of that. Um, so at this time, there is this working memory that comes into place at the same time the physical ability does. But then the last piece of the puzzle is what some scholars call learning with reason. And this is the ability to not just learn habitual actions, like those ants that can pile up mud to transport honey, um, but you have to reason, you have to have a creative tool use. You have to be able to creatively understand the problem and come up with a unique solution for it. And that is a major cognitive leap that you do not see in many parts of the animal kingdom. So what you said is that we had an ancestor who first picked up this stone tool and unwittingly mm -hmm. <laughs> laid the path for the screwdrivers and the power saws that are sitting in our garages today, but it and the early tools that followed shaped our minds and bodies mm -hmm. in return. How did that happen? What's an example? Yeah, so um, the best way to think about a knife is to think about it as an external human tooth, right? So if you have a pile of raw meat and you need to eat it, it takes a lot of energy to actually consume that meat. You need sharp teeth, strong jaws. But if you're able to slice that meat prior to consuming it, you're essentially, you've started the digestive process external to your body. So when you're eating raw meat, instead of it being a big slab that you have to gnaw on and, you know, really get into <laughs> smaller pieces to be able to swallow, if it's cut up into tiny little pieces like tartar, um, you're actually able to eat it more efficiently and easily, and you can actually get more calories out of it that way too. And so what happened is that as these technologies emerged for, for example, chopping up meat, chopping up root vegetables that were probably also very tough, the teeth of our ancient ancestors actually began to become duller. The jaws became smaller, more refined. 
because all of that eating started external to the body. And what that did in turn is allowed for more space in the head for bigger brains. At exactly the same time, our ancestors were consuming more calories more easily. So anthropologists use a little piece of jargon called um, techno-organic evolution. And it really is unique to our species, again, starting about 3.5 million years ago, where we co-evolve with our technology. And you begin to see this not just with cutting tools to eat food, but then later you begin to see it with shelter, for example, right? If you don't need to be exposed to the elements, um, we see the first houses emerge about 400,000 years ago. Uh, people start living in uh, caves more efficiently. You see it with the emergence of clothing, right? If your skin, you don't need as much fur because you have clothing instead. So our bodies almost certainly began to evolve and change directly in response to the technologies that were created. And it explains why today we can't live without stuff. You know, we as a species are very susceptible to all kinds of dangers in the world, and we simply can't survive without these tools. The point that you make about this tool, this first tool, and we're just, we're going to move on, but it's important to say one more thing about it, mm -hmm. is that it allowed us to go beyond our natural physical abilities. So now we could do some things that we weren't able to do. And as you write, this is a huge leap, but there's a, a continual feedback. So our bodies change because of our tools, but then our tools are reshaped too because of our biology. And this is a, a feedback that picks up speed. Absolutely. We become more tool-oriented and more dependent on tools. Absolutely. And it's a really special, unique story, not to go too far into human exceptionalism, but uh, what happened really is distinct in the history of evolution of, uh, you know, within the animal kingdom, where there's this continuous feedback loop. And it is the really key part of that is the brain and the ability to have a bigger and bigger brain that because we're consuming more calories more easily because of these tools, but then the, as the brain gets bigger and more sophisticated, it in turn is able to make more sophisticated tools. So the bigger brain, the ability to problem solve in ever more creative ways because of the tools, then leads to more creative tools. And so that feedback loop is really dynamic and really a special part of our story. One of the other concepts you describe that is key in understanding our attachment to tools is that of radical embodiment. And your description of this applies to all sorts of tools, eyeglasses and pencils and brooms, but it was about bikes that I identified mm. strongly. And you write, quote, when a person rides a bike, there is a beautiful unison when the person and the bike become part of the bike person machine. Chip, why is it that this idea of tools as an extension of our bodies is important as we consider the evolution and the attachment to stuff? It's an important moment, and we don't know exactly where it happened and when, um, but we do know it happened somewhere in this story of our evolution, that as our bodies probably became more exposed to the world, more uh, gracile, more uh, feeble, you know, and unable to survive without these tools, the tools actually become an extension of our bodies themselves out into the world. So 
the examples we can draw from people I'm sure are really familiar with this, you know, is uh, think about you have a rake outside and you are raking uh, and you come across some gravel, you could probably be blindfolded and know that you are raking across gravel because we have evolved to be able to perceive the vibrations of that tool and interpret it in very particular ways. But our hand actually isn't touching the gravel, right? It's the tool that's touching it. And yet we can experience that. Uh, For musicians out in the world, think about a violinist playing a violin and as she drags her bow across the string, she can precisely perceive the sounds that will emerge from it merely from the tool of the bow itself. And so it's the cognitive ability to actually extend ourselves out into the world through tools that allows us to use these tools in really powerful and creative ways. And so the bike example is yet one more of these where we, through balance, through perception of the vibrations of the wheels, um, the direction that we actually become one with this instrument in the world. As this happens with more and more tools, Mm. tools then are not something we have, they're almost something that we are. So here we are creating tools, we're we're attached to them, they allow us to do things that we weren't able to do. But you also make the point that the invention of things required the invention of other things. So if you have a hammer and you have a nail, then you need a claw, you need to invent the claw to take the nail out. And with everything that we make, we need to make other things to make everything possible. And it's an endless list of Mm -hmm. things that we needed to invent. Yeah, that's fascinating, right? How an end product, an end thing actually has many things that it takes to make that thing. And so, you know, way back, we can think about this in kind of simple terms. Uh, For example, it's cold outside and you need a coat, right? But to get a coat, you need an, an animal skin. Well, in order to get an animal skin, you need to kill the animal. So you need a sharp stone tool. Well, in order to make a sharp stone tool, you need a hammer, right? And so it kind of, as you're saying, you know, each step requires often more and more tools. And so that's just a coat made out of animal skins. Now imagine a computer, right, or an airplane in our world today. And you can really understand how the technology, as it gets more and more complicated, you need actually more and more tools to create that end product. It's interesting that you use the word need because at some point, maybe it was want or desire, but now we use the word need. I need this, I need that. It's just assumed that we need to create more stuff and more iterations of things we already have. Uh, That word need creeps in at some point where it used to be that it was, maybe the need was confined to objects that had survival value. But maybe that Mm -hmm. definition of survival value (laughs) has expanded as well. Well, your, your question is creeping in a little bit to the uh, conclusion of the book, but um, to preface it now, it's absolutely true. You know, if you think about probably the very start of some of the most basic technologies, like a coat to stay warm, that that was a need, you know, probably as our species had these tools, they were actually able to move into new environments that otherwise they wouldn't be able to survive in, right? So you actually see our ancestors move into very, very cold places um, that require these technologies, but without those technologies, they wouldn't have survived. So 
there probably was, you know, way back some very basic needs tied to technology. And there still are today, right? We need to eat and we need often some level of technology in order to eat. But over the centuries, you're right that there's a slippage between need and want. And because of the Industrial Revolution, especially around marketing, in my view, uh, we've become ever more convinced that wants are needs when, in fact, they often are not. Wonder why it's so hard to clean out your garage? Coming up, we identify the second leap in human evolution, the moment when we gave meaning to things. You're listening to The Right Show about the wrong stuff on Big Picture Science. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Is your anaconda getting squeaky? Your cobra too dry? Maybe you have a python too fat to squeeze into its lair. Well, Slippery Serpent is here to help. Slippery Serpent is the industry leader in 100% pure organic and artisanal oil made from snakes for snakes okay, Seth, Seth, by what snakes. What are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I'm reading this ad copy from a new sponsor, a Viper Rubber, something like that. Got to pay the bills somehow. Seth, it's literally snake oil. Yeah, but it's artisanal snake oil. Well, I think our listeners would rather go to patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and help us directly than to hear you stoop to being a snake oil salesman. How low can you go? Well, in my case, pretty low. But you're right, Molly. Artisanal snake oil salesman, not much to aspire to. Listeners can easily join us, though, on Patreon and give small monthly donations to help keep us in production. Plus, you can hear each episode before the podcast is released, and you don't have to listen to any ads. And any amount helps. And at the $5 a month level, you'll get access to exclusive bonus material, like Seth's recent conversation with assistant producer Brian Edwards about gravitational waves. It's an attractive subject. So please join us at patreon.com slash bigpicturescience and get early access to ad-free episodes and more. And we appreciate your support. Thank you. If you feel like your house is overstuffed, well, there are studies to back you up. Anthropologist Chip Caldwell says that the average American home has 300,000 things. Okay, it would seem easy to part with a, a few thousand of them at least, but as we know, it can be difficult to say goodbye to just one. And we can find insight into why that is if we jump from the birth of tools three million years ago, which we just heard about, to about 50,000 years ago, when our ancestors realized that things held the capacity to be more than objects of utility. So this second leap in our discussion about the history of stuff is in some way the most important, if we're to understand how we went from needing almost nothing 
to needing everything. In his book, So Much Stuff, Dr. Caldwell defines this leap in human evolution as taking place when we began to imbue objects with symbolism and meaning. So we're still piecing together when, where, and why exactly meaning was invented. But we see hints and whispers around the world of our ancient ancestors realizing that these tools can have an extraordinary ability to um, shape our perception of the world, our self-expression, our ability to, to recognize that something is beautiful, that something is spiritual, that something can be passed from generation to generation and have extra uh, meaning in our lives. So, yeah, I think, you know, if <clears throat> just kind of as a counterfactual, if you could imagine meaning never came along and we just stuck with tools merely for survival in the same way, you know, ants or crows or chimpanzees use tools, we wouldn't have our world today. Um, s almost everything in our world today is built around the meanings they contain. And so without this leap, we wouldn't be who we are. Now, you said tools are imbued with meaning, but something like your glitter cowboy boots or your antique books and things like that, those aren't tools per se. They're more like objects of art. So is this also the period of time when we begin to create things that they don't just have survival value, they don't just have utility? Because we wouldn't say that those blue cowboy boots, I don't know why I'm thinking of that, but any of the objects, look around. Yeah. Most of them are not tools. That is exactly what archaeologists are looking for, to try and define these first moments of meaning. So, for example, um, archaeologists found a shell uh, that was processed, you know, for the, the meat within the shell, probably in Indonesia, dating to 500,000 years ago, made by a Homo erectus ancestor. And on this shell are carved these kind of zigzag marks into it. That's not a tool. There's no reason for a Homo erectus to carve into that shell, right? Um, that's not going to help them eat better. It's not going to help them get more calories. So there was something in that moment where that Homo erectus ancestor thought to do something a little bit different with that shell that had no purpose for survival. Do you interpret that as self-expression, if not art? It's That's the mystery and the question. And, you know, from my viewpoint, yes, that is probably the first inkling of a version of self-expression. Um, and it's fascinating that some of the earliest moments of proto-art, you know, self-expression, are these zigzags that we see. We, there's another um, artifact that I talk about in my book dating to about 100,000 years ago in South Africa, a large chunk of ochre, you know, the red mineral um, that has very, very distinctive um, uh, zigzags etched into them. And so those are the first hints that our ancestors are putting something different into these objects. And we know because of where we ended up today, somewhere between those very first etching marks and Van Gogh's Starry Night, we see the birth of art and meaning in its truest forms. But that early self-expression, as you said, is a little bit different from actual art. Something mm -hmm, else mm -hmm. happened about 50,000 years ago 
Yeah. Not 500,000 mm -hmm. years ago, which was when the shell was dated to, but 50,000 years ago, we see some of the first art in cave paintings, perhaps. And by 30,000 years ago, as you write, art is everywhere. Mm -hmm. We are making beautiful things <laughs> right and left. So there's some kind of explosion mm -hmm. in this self-expression and the concept of creating beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know, so art as a category, I believe is another kind of confluence of different animal instincts and unique human traits. To begin with, uh, there is a deep animal instinct for aesthetics. Um, we know animals are attracted to, um, you know, beautiful uh, feathers or, you know, uh, different kinds of what likely are aesthetic values within uh, their species. So aesthetic instincts are really important, but that's not enough. Self-expression is also really unique to our ancestors. Again, we're seeing it probably emerge about 500,000 years ago. Um, but you can express yourself in many ways, but it isn't necessarily beautiful. So you have to marry aesthetics with self-expression. But then the very final step is the ability to imagine in your mind something totally unique and something that does not exist in the world and then be able to invent it or create it. Um, so if you look at some of the very earliest probable art forms, um, what our ancestors were doing was taking objects that resembled something in real life and maybe modifying it slightly. So for example, there is a figurine from the Near East dating to about 250,000 years ago, and it kind of looks like a voluptuous person, maybe a voluptuous woman. So you're taking something real and then transforming it slightly. But compare that to a Picasso painting of a scene that simply did not exist in the real world. It's a blank slate in his mind and a blank slate on the canvas that he is then able to marry aesthetics with self-expression with his imagination. And that is the full flowering of art and the meaning of artistic objects in our world. But, but Chip, the the stuff, and I'm using the anthropological scientific term stuff because you use it in the title of your book, but the stuff we have around us, we couldn't make the case that all this stuff is all art. What is the connection between art and stuff? And when did, mm -hmm. when did it become stuff and not art? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I, in the book, uh, I suggest that art is just example and probably one of the clearest examples that we have in the archaeological record of being able to trace the development of meaning. So it's not just art. Um, we also see the emergence around this time of probably religious objects, probably about 100,000, definitely before about 50,000 years ago, uh, we see religious objects emerge. You also probably see objects that have some sort of exchange value. For example, you see beads emerge about 50,000 years ago. Um, so maybe the first hints of what eventually becomes money, um, right? So it's this ability to have symbolic thinking and symbolic meaning in our world um, that is perhaps best traceable and best understandable in the form of art, but it's not just art. And that's what's so amazing is that by about 50,000 years ago, we see meaning in its fullest forms all across the material world. And that is the foundation of our modern world of, and things of meaning. 
But meaning is one thing. You could go back to that cave, the person who painted the bison 50,000 years ago might go and enjoy those paintings. But that's not the same as needing to acquire it. It's not the same as attachment. When did all of our stuff become infused with identity? Because at some point, it does become indistinguishable from identity and who we are. That's right. That's right. And in order for that to happen, things have to have meaning, right? So for you to wear clothes and not just merely keep you warm, but express your identity as, you know, through gender, through nationality, through culture, um, through family history, um, all of those notions of identity, that comes through not just clothing as warmth, but clothing as meaning. So it's precisely the ability to attach meaning to objects, as we see in art as an example, that leads us to these fundamental connections that we make to things and so that things aren't just merely tools but that they are symbols of who we are how we live our values our belief systems uh, things we love things we loathe um, all of that is tied to this invention of meaning that's very clear so we are transmitting messages with everything that we buy and wear and own and share and give to other people it's all imbued with meaning but ownership and, and collecting things, this, this attachment to things, it doesn't have to be this way. Some cultures practice the custom of giving away objects. And you describe in the book the ritual around Native American potlatches. Can mm-hmm. you describe a potlatch, please? Mm-hmm. So a potlatch is a cultural tradition practiced among a number of nations along the northwest coast of North America and Canada and the U.S., And in the tradition, a potlatch is held for lots of different reasons. Um, Perhaps someone died, perhaps someone is being honored, perhaps there was an exchange of goods. So lots of reasons it happens, but essentially it's a big party where people come together to celebrate whatever the event is. And a big part of this party is giving stuff away. And the more that you give away, the more prestige that the hosts have. And this event has really fascinated and captured many people's imaginations and especially anthropologists who are trying to understand why people would give away so much stuff. You know, what's really the purpose um, in an evolutionary sense, in a cultural sense of giving stuff away? Because it doesn't make a lot of sense. You know, most of us try to get as much as we can, accumulate as much as we have in order to uh, demonstrate our wealth. But in this culture, giving stuff away is actually the way wealth and prestige are demonstrated. So to review, objects begin to have symbolic meaning maybe 500,000 years ago, but at least 50,000 years ago with the birth of art. Um, But then we come to this pivotal moment in this second leap, this leap where things become imbued with meaning. And that happens around 12,000 years ago. And and up to this point, the accumulation of stuff has been held in check. And you write, throughout much of human history, the path to accumulate has been tempered by scarcity. People had access to little, so they could accumulate little. But then, Chip, we have the birth of agriculture, of staying in place. And how did that change our relationship to stuff? It changed everything. So prior to about 12,000 years ago, in many parts of the world, people moved around a lot. And it was really hard to accumulate stuff when you had to move, you know, every so often, every season or even more frequently. 
But when you settle down, as I think a lot of us probably know in our lives, right? <clears throat> the longer you are in a house, the more stuff you probably have there. Um, you're, and the more uh, that you need one more room. If yes. I just had one more room <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to put the stuff right. in, and everything that's why you need a bigger good. house just yes. to hold your stuff, right? So <laughs> I think many of us realize this habit that we have of the once you're settled down, it's easy to accumulate stuff. And um, in a less joking way, uh, once you're settled down, you actually need more stuff as well. You actually do need it, not just want it, because you need to be able to, for example, have uh, ways of getting water into your town um, that's clean and being able to dispose of waste, right? So you need like sewer systems and plumbing and other kinds of technology and tools to build those systems. Uh, when you're settled in one place and you're defending it, you need an army, most likely, to be able to defend it. So now you need weapons and other kinds of systems in place for martial activities, and on and on it goes. So as people, our ancestors, settled in more permanent locations in order to cultivate foods, agriculture, um, we began to need more stuff in these settlements. And then a really key part of this, too, is the ability to have surplus. So if you have extra grain, if you have extra food, more cattle, you know, what do you do with that surplus? And then you have the emergence of inequalities that we see in our modern world as well, because individuals are able to use those surpluses to purchase more things, to have bigger palaces, to create priesthoods that have more kinds of religious objects that are in turn meant to navigate the vicissitudes of weather um, so that you have successful agriculture, right? So you have different classes and different kinds of specializations emerge in these societies and with those inequalities, social inequalities, but material inequalities as well. And those places where they stored their excess were probably the the great ancestors of the modern-day storage locker that we pay for. <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, where did this quantity of stuff come from? Why am I able to stuff my garage to the gills with power tools and model trains? This next leap in human evolution paves the way for the modern era of abundance. That's right, it's the wrong stuff on Big Picture Science. With Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. I'm walking down a shopping street in California, uh, but this could be a street of shops anywhere in the country. And I'm just taking in the things that are for sale. We're looking at pants in 
four or five different colors, and the same for sweaters. There's a store across the street that's devoted to, to sunglasses, also hats. So hats in all different kind of colors and shoes. You have pumps and flats, boots and fancy shoes. And there's some beautiful shoes, actually. Those are great looking. Uh, anyway, moving on. And around the corner here is a store of uh, homewares. The selection of spatulas uh, alone is impressive. So any spatula you need, any color you might want for your spatula is here on display. Red and white, blue, pink. So it depends on, on uh, your mood, I guess, when you're cooking. The first two leaps in the history of stuff were cognitive. Humans figured out how to make tools and gave symbolic meaning to objects. The third and last leap into the modern age was cultural. That is, the drive and means to gather tons of raw material and turn them into goods through mass production. A recent study put global consumption of raw materials, you know, sand, clay, gravel, trees, coal and oil, at 100 million tons a year. Anthropologist Chip Caldwell describes the shift in our cultural evolution that actually began a few centuries before the mass production of the Industrial Revolution. That's what created extreme abundance for billions of people and the rise of a throwaway society. The seeds for our modern age of overconsumption are planted around 500 years ago when we begin to see European global expansion, colonialism and imperialism, and the extraction of materials and minerals and other kinds of goods to produce an overabundance for an elite class in Europe. And through these global trade networks um, that uh, were put in place, that is what enabled the modern industrial world as well as the beginning notions of an ideology of abundance, which is really, really key to this third leap. It's not just the ability to make more, it's the ability to want more and more and more and never feel like you have enough. What's extraordinary about it is that it's been normalized. I mean, you're challenging it, other scientists, other people are challenging this idea that more is better. But I'm wondering, as I hear you describe it now, the desire to have more and more and more, whether it's not a pathology. I mean, I guess it's an addiction and that might make it a pathology. Well, I'm not that kind of doctor, so I can't <laughs> necessarily speak to pathologies. I can say as an archeologist, you see how our world today is a singular moment in Earth's history. In four plus billion years, there has never been a species that has produced so much and that produces so much more than we could ever need. And that really does go to how we've been convinced that we always have to consume more and more to have a better and better life. Um, but this is really a construction that was invented um, in this modern age. Uh, and it, you can trace it to very specific individuals, to very specific moments where there was an economic need to get people to buy more. You have a fascinating section on hoarding. And there's a twist to it, which we'll, we'll come to, which is its relationship to our throwaway culture. But um, could you give us an example of modern day hoarding? Mm -hmm. The most famous example, most fascinating example, is a story of two brothers who lived in New York. Uh, they're named uh, the Collier brothers. 
and they were hermits living in Harlem in New York. And they lived their lives, were kind of known in their neighborhood as strange people. They ended up passing, and their uh, house was inspected by the police as they were trying to find uh, the remains of the brothers. And what the police found was this uh, 12-room mansion that was stuffed, literally, from floor almost to ceiling, the entire place. And there are thousands of tons of materials of just everything you could imagine from the modern age stuffed into this place. And that was the most famous case of modern uh, hoarders. But there were other ones that have, even before then, that were uh, talked about or known. But now today, with the easy ability to consume endless amounts of stuff, hoarding, unfortunately and tragically, has taken over many people's lives. To put some of this in perspective, our our ancestors um, would maybe bury a hoard, you know, have a hoard of tools or something else that they needed. But you distinguish between having a hoard and hoarding. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that here we have yet another example of our biology meeting our modern reality and what we've creatively figured out um, based on an animal instinct. So again, looking across the animal kingdom, you see many different animals practice hoarding behaviors. We see this, um, probably a lot of people notice squirrels hoarding food, right? Um, There's this really amazing bird species called uh, acorn woodpecker who hoards hundreds and hundreds of acorns in this kind of uh, bank vault of acorns with these all these holes that are tended with acorns in them for eating for later. So hoarding is not surprising that we have it as a human. It's smart. Uh, often you want to save stuff for later. It helps you survive. But having a hoard to help you survive or maybe you bury it for later because, you know, in the ancient world you didn't have banks or storage facilities, that makes sense. Um, But the hoarding that we see in our contemporary world is literally, this one is a pathology because psychologists have identified it as such, that uh, it leads to distress, it leads to um, all kinds of um, limitations in people's ability to interact socially. It's, It's an actual problem in our world, and it's made possible by the industrial complex that we have where we can get a lot of stuff very quickly, very cheaply, and it can accumulate in ways that literally takes over people's lives. The paradox um, and the twist is coming because we are both a hoarding and a throwaway society. Mm -hmm. But the moment that really made me sit up in your book, actually there have been many moments, (laughs) it's a great read, you write that hoarding and throwaway society are the same thing. Mm -hmm. Can you say a little bit more about that? And so in the 1950s, um, on the heels of World War II, industrialists and marketers wanted to convince people to buy more. Um, For one of the first times in human history, there was more surplus than demand uh, because you had all these factories creating a lot of um, uh, war material. 
So these factories had all the stuff and they needed to convince people, as well as new technologies, especially plastics that were invented and really refined during World War II. So they had the ability to make more and more stuff. And because there was a global depression, not a lot of people had a lot of money to buy stuff. So industrialists and marketers figured out that one way to get people to buy more was to convince people to throw away more. Meaning, instead of having one plate, a ceramic plate, that you could use for a lifetime, you buy one plastic plate that you use once and then throw away immediately. And this was actually a very specific strategy laid out by capitalists to encourage us, all of us, to consume more and more and more. And But we didn't yeah. just adopt mm -hmm. it, Chip. We got very comfortable with it. It's easy, right? I mean, it's in some ways, it, it is easy to buy a plastic plate, use it once and throw it away compared to a ceramic plate that you have to hand wash or care for and store and those sorts of things. So, But, but it doesn't yeah. stop at the plates. It's a plastic that's meant to be thrown away. It's the toasters. I mean, the appliances in my parents' house lasted, I think, my entire childhood. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we got one new washing machine. Everything else was the same. We don't think about repairing things now, or a few people do. We are very comfortable with throwing them away and then getting something new. And that is a marketing technique that has been used to convince us that it is okay. But it's also a technological approach called planned obsolescence. And that is a fancy word that basically means that a lot of things in our lives have been designed to go out of fashion very quickly, to break down very quickly, to not be repairable so that we are compelled to buy more and more and more. And, and those are different things. So one, if it breaks down, of course you have to get something new. But fashion, something going out of fashion is psychological, right? Because the, the dress may be perfectly fine to keep you warm <laughs> or, well, or clothed. Well, the two points, you know, on the first one, actually a lot of our electronics, for example, are repairable, but they're often built so that they cannot be repaired. Perhaps the battery, for example, that breaks down, uh, you know, that, that fails, um, is locked, literally designed to be locked into the back of the electronics, so you can't pry it open and simply replace the battery. Instead, you have to buy a whole new device. So a lot of our technologies actually are built to be thrown away as quickly as possible so that we're going to buy more and more. And then the second part of that is um, the design element and convincing us that to be a part of the latest fashions, we need to stay on top of um, the latest uh, and greatest that's being offered to us. And that was invented by a car company, Chevrolet, um, back in the 1920s when they realized that the cars were actually lasting people a long time, so they weren't buying them. And so they simply slapped on a new external body to the same interior of the car and sold it as quote unquote new and quote-unquote literally superior, which was the name of some of those very first cars. And the idea was that this is a new something that's greater and better than the other thing, but the only difference was the shell of the car. And that describes so much of our notions of fast fashion, of the latest phones, um, and so much in our lives today. And it has its origins in the origins of meaning and self-expression, that we're very attached to self-expression and um, what that telegraphs. I found it interesting to learn that the term planned obsolescence, which I thought arose around the time of the iPhone, actually goes all the way back to the 1930s. That's right. That's right. Marketers figured this out pretty early. And I love your point about how, how deftly 
marketers and others have tapped in to this very ancient and fundamental notion of what it is to be human and our love of meaning. That's such an important point. So just to be clear of why a hoarding society is also a throwaway society, if you walk into someone's house who is a hoarder, you've probably owned all that stuff yourself. <laughs> exactly. But now that stuff is sitting in a landfill or in a garbage can exactly, somewhere. Exactly, yeah. And, you, and I was myself shocked when I looked at the numbers and, you know, you can look at, you know, hoarders' homes that have been cleared out and the actual tonnage that is in the home. And you look at the average waste of an average American and how much they throw in a landfill. And they're not that far apart. They're really, really close. (laughs) And so that's exactly (laughs) it. We are all hoarders. It's just we hoard our stuff in landfills and it's out of sight and out of mind. And we think we can live simply or, you know, ways that aren't over consuming, but we are, we're hoarding often at vast scales that are damaging to, I would argue, ourselves in many ways, our communities and the environment writ large. And that brings us to the final big picture point here. So we've come to this point where we have created, um, we've manufactured, as it were, this ideology of consumption. We have an insatiable desire for more stuff, as you said. And Chip, I wonder if you could describe where that has left us. That is psychically, culturally, and what the environmental consequences are. The consequences are very real. Um, It's estimated, for example, that... uh, the amount of waste the world will throw away is almost going to double by 2050. We can look at the amount of plastics in our oceans. We can look at the kind of harms that our teenagers are experiencing as the father of a 12 year old. I'm really tapped into this, this notion that you can only be beautiful if you buy this makeup or these clothes, that you can only be happy if you have a big house you know, um, those are dangerous notions, uh, even at the individual personal level of how we live our lives and our notions of identity. So from the smallest, most intimate part of our lives to the biggest parts of our world and what we need to sustain our lives, the story of stuff has led us to the precipice of uh, a question of whether or not, you know, we're really going to be able to survive and sustain this world that we've created through our things. Well, finally, Chip, I know that historians don't like to play the game of what if, engage in the speculation of the past. I'm Mm. sure that anthropologists, archaeologists are the same. But if you could meet the individual who led us down this evolutionary (laughs) and cultural path when he or she picked up that first rock, or if you could have halted the evolution of stuff somewhere along that three million year trajectory, would you have stopped it three million years ago? Or is there an ideal resting point along the way between having and resisting stuff? Where oh, would that be? Wow, that's such a good question. Um, you know, it's hard to imagine who we are in every sense. You know, uh, our, the way we perceive the world, the way we exist, the way we survive the things that bring us joy, the things that bring us pain, all of that is tied to this history of stuff. So to go back and stop that very first Australopithecine from you know, slicing off a piece of meat with a stone tool, I think would be asking for us not to exist. 
So I'm not sure I would go that far. Um, <laughs> um, but I do think, you know, one of the most fundamental turning points was certainly during the Industrial Revolution and the emergence of capitalism, uh, which is predicated on the notion of abundance and needing to produce more and more and consume more and more. And I think in that, it's really in that third leap where we see very specific choices being made that led us to our world of overconsumption. And uh, to me, what's so encouraging about that is this is not some, you know, I'm not, I think, pointing back to three million years ago. This is within, within recent, relatively recent history. And these are choices that we can make. And these are choices that we can still make. We can reevaluate. We can reimagine our world of stuff in totally new and radical ways. Well, Chip Caldwell, thank you so much for this illuminating exploration of our relationship to stuff. Thank you. Chip Caldwell is an archaeologist and former curator of anthropology at the Denver Museum of Nature and Science. He's editor-in-chief of the digital magazine Sapiens and author of So Much Stuff, How Humans Discovered Tools, Invented Meaning, and Made More of Everything. Well, Seth, we've come to the big picture moment in the show about the evolution of stuff, how we went from primates that needed very little to compulsive shoppers that need just about everything. What are your big picture thoughts here? Yeah, I think that those <laughs> early humans, I mean, you know, the people that were walking around 10,000 years ago or 20,000 years ago, they didn't need too much. They, they needed to secure their next meal. They needed to protect themselves. They needed a mate. But beyond that, you know, they weren't so much into getting a fancy new car or anything like that. And as technology has proliferated, the number of items we could have, well, maybe it's just our inner nature. Maybe it's something we can't avoid, but we want some of that stuff. <laughs> That's true. We do. And George Carlin agreed. You know how important that is. That's the whole, that's the whole meaning of life, isn't it? Trying to find a place for your stuff. That's all your house is. Your house is just a place for your stuff. If you didn't have so much stuff, you wouldn't need a house. You could just walk around all the time. That's all your house is. It's a place to keep your stuff while you go out and get more stuff. This show is assembled thanks to the right stuff of senior producer Gary Niederhoff and assistant producers Brian Edwards and Shannon Rose Geary. I am the executive producer of Big Picture Science, Molly Bentley. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, a nonprofit education and research organization that searches for life beyond Earth. I'm the Institute's senior astronomer, Seth Shostak. Also, a big thanks to our listeners and our Patreon supporters. The original music in the show is by Dewey DeLay and June Miyake. This episode of Big Picture Science that looks at the history of how we came to accumulate far more than we need is called The Wrong Stuff. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. 
That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts.